Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I do this podcast as well as From John to Justin and Pucks and Cups full-time. It's my job, and every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And I'll make sure I thank you on the air and throughout my social media. And both the links to those places are in my show notes. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. And I have a YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. And remember, that's E-H-X. I'll have all of those links in my show notes as well. For over a century, women have had the right to vote in Canadian federal elections and provincial elections. We take it for granted now, but the fight to get to that point was a long one for the women who wanted equal rights when it came to voting. Today, I'm looking at the road to women's suffrage. The history of women voting actually dates back much farther than most people realize. 27 Kenyan Keaka women from Kanawake cast ballots, as well some Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish women who owned property in early Lower Canada elections were able to vote. There would be outliers in the push for voting rights for women though, and it would be another half century before the cause was taken up. Prior to 1851, some women could vote if they had those property qualifications and elections in the province of Canada, but various places would begin to exclude women, including the province of Canada itself in 1849. When Canada was formed in 1867, the British North America Act gave the vote to male British subjects who were over the age of 21 and owned property. This resulted in only about 8% of the population being able to vote in Canada's first election in the late summer and early autumn of 1867. And while more white males would get the vote over the course of the next few decades, women were excluded completely. During the Victorian era, women were expected to stay at home, preserve culture, and produce children. They were not expected to take part in political life. For women, as the 19th century went on, they began to push against this belief, giving rise to the suffrage movement. One of the first women to take up the cause of women's suffrage was Marianne Shad, a black abolitionist who came to Canada after the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. In 1853, she began to publish the newspaper The Provincial Freeman, where she wrote articles advocating for women's rights, and her newspaper would help the cause in other ways, including by publishing where suffrage meetings were being held in Canada as well as the United States. Shad would return to the United States in 1860 to begin campaigning for the Union during the American Civil War. The next person to push Canada along the path of women's suffrage was Dr. Emily Stowe. Dr. Stowe was the first female physician in Canada and the second licensed female physician in our country. It was her help in founding the women's suffrage movement in Canada that she left her biggest mark on the country. She would help form the Toronto Women's Literary Club in 1876, and with her daughter Augusta Stowe Gullen, she worked to build up the influence of the club to aid women's suffrage. And in 1883, the TWLC became the Toronto Women's Suffrage Association. As the 1880s wore on, various union organizations began to endorse women's suffrage, including the Knights of Labor. 
Suffragists did not just focus on gaining voting rights for women. They would also take up the causes related to public health, employment equality, women's education, social assistance, and condemning violence against women. Eventually, temperance became a cause for many suffragists, leading to the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the largest women's group in Canada, lending their support to suffrage, believing that women voting would lead to prohibition and a decrease in violence against women. I talked about prohibition a little bit, but I focused on prohibition in Prince Edward Island on an earlier episode, so be sure to check that out. In 1885, the Federal Electoral Franchise Act is passed, which gives the right to vote to male persons. Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald raises the prospect of expanding the vote to unmarried women and widows with property, but opposition to this causes the proposal to be dropped. It was also in 1885 that Liberal MPP John Waters introduces the first proposal to give women the right to vote in Ontario. It would fail, but he would continue to submit his proposal until 1893. In the 1890s, women in Nova Scotia began to launch campaigns to get the vote after being excluded from it since 1851. In Halifax, the movement was the strongest, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union was a main force in the province for pushing the cause. Around this same time, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Halifax Local Council of Women submitted 34 petitions and supported six suffrage bills in Nova Scotia, all of which that failed. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was also in New Brunswick since the 1880s, and it helped women get the right to vote in municipal elections, but not provincial. The Women's Enfranchised Association of New Brunswick would also be formed in 1894 to push for women's suffrage in the province, and women had seen any chance of the vote revoked since 1836. On February 9, 1893, the first mock parliament is held in Winnipeg when Amelia Yeomans, a pioneering doctor, had submitted a petition and was ignored. In response, she helped organize the mock parliament, and this tactic would become a common practice throughout Canada for the next two decades in the suffrage movement. On May 8, 1895, the first motion for women's suffrage would be presented in Parliament by Nicholas Flood Davin. The motion called for the enfranchisement for women who met property qualifications, but did not include anything for women to run for political office. The Montreal Gazette reported, quote, He mentioned Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, Mary Queen of Scots, and other famous women in history, in proof of feminine political ability and reviewed the progress the question had made in the British House of Commons. Quote. While Wilfrid Laurier, who would become Prime Minister the next year, was not against suffrage, he did not feel it was a federal cause, and he would put in an amendment that stated quote, that the question of women's suffrage is one which, like other questions concerning suffrage, more properly belongs to provincial jurisdiction. End quote. One MP, identified as Craig, stated that he wanted no politicians around his house and that it would take away from a woman's charm if she was allowed to mix into politics. The opponents to the motion stated that the proper sphere for a woman is in the home, and it was defeated 105 votes to 47. Slowly, though, things began to change. By 1900, some suffragists had won voting rights in various cities in Canada, while others could vote in elections for park, library, and school boards. Things would continue to change through the early 1900s thanks to formal schooling beyond elementary school. Prior to this, such schooling was limited for women, but women began to attend colleges and universities, which began to influence their beliefs on suffrage and equal rights for women. On June 24, 1909, the suffragist movement would gain a major support when the Toronto Globe, one of the most important newspapers in Canada, 
endorsed suffrage in a headline that stated, quote, The time has come to enfranchise the women, end quote. The movement was growing strong enough that by December 23, 1912, the suffragists met with Prime Minister Robert Borden, hoping that he would publicly state his support for a motion. He would state that he refused to do so. By 1914, women's suffrage was gaining immense steam. Then the First World War came along and the suffrage campaign was interrupted as many of its leaders and supporters started to focus on the war effort. The suffrage movement began to slow in Central and Eastern Canada during these years, but it would be Canada's West where it would suddenly start to grow stronger. Western Canada became extremely open to women's suffrage for a number of reasons. First, the area was newly colonized and white settler women were relied upon heavily on the homesteads. It was also believed that giving women the vote would attract more white newcomers to the West. That's not to say that every woman supported women's suffrage. There were anti-suffragists who believed voting would lead to the discord within families and the breakdown of what they saw as the proper role of women in the home. Some claimed that mothers did not need to understand political affairs, while some even argued that women were not intelligent enough to engage in politics. Western Canada had been endorsing women's suffrage long before the First World War. In the 1870s, many Icelandic communities in Manitoba were endorsing it, and it was from Manitoba many early suffragists would come along, including Margaret Benedictson, Frances Benyon, and possibly the most famous of them all, Nellie McClung. Now I'm going to pause here to talk about something that came along with the suffragist movement, eugenics, of which many early suffragists like McClung were in favor of. I'm not going to talk about it here because I did an entire episode about it and the link is in my transcript of this episode on my website. But I felt it should be mentioned though rather than glossed over. McClung would write In Times Like These, which became a bestseller and combined a serious argument with a sarcastic put-down of anti-suffragists. In 1912, the Manitoba Political Equality League was established and in 1914 it would hold a mock parliament that was well publicized and would become a common tactic of suffragists elsewhere in Canada from this point. In this mock parliament, suffragists would play the roles of politicians, with McClung mocking Sir Rodman Roblin, the Premier of Manitoba at the time, in her debate of whether or not men should be given the vote. This was made into a heritage minute in the 1990s. I don't understand why women want to oh, vote. really? The first time Nellie McClung saw the Premier about votes for women... Things are changing. It didn't go too well for McClung. Take it from me, Mrs. McClung. Nice women don't want the vote. So then she staged a mock parliament attacking votes for men. Think what would happen if we actually allowed men to vote. Why, they would become obsessed with politics. Politics are like drinks. Once you start, if men started voting, families would be disrupted. Divorces would follow. Madam Speaker, take it from me. Nice men don't want the vote. After a long campaign, Manitoba's women became the first to get the provincial vote. Nice the next you, time they met, morning, in a polling gentlemen. station, it didn't go too well for the Premier. Premier Rodden, I'm sure you don't want your photograph taken with a woman who's not nice. McClung, during the 1914 election campaign, spoke 60 times in two months, sometimes three times a day, and she became a household name in the province, with some calling her Manitoba's prospective woman premier. McLean's magazine would write, quote, McClung has the courage of her convictions. You know the moment she mounts the platform and begins speaking. She speaks to you. This is her charm. 
Time, place, audience, and conventionalities all fade away, and there is no one but you and Nellie McClung speaking of things you should have known long ago but did not. End quote. McClung would tell the members of the Manitoba legislature, quote, Have we not the brains to think, hands to work, hearts to feel, and lives to live? Do we not bear our part in citizenship? Do we not help build the empire? Give us our due. End quote. Premier Roblin would respond that most women don't want the vote, stating, quote, Now you forget all this nonsense about women voting. You're a fine, smart young woman. I can see that. And take it from me, nice women don't want the vote. End quote. Well, he made such a fuss over it, uh, and was so, um, it was so repugnant to him that it got into the papers. Of course, the opposition papers were very glad to have this story. And Nellie McClung decided that she would put on a mock parliament down in uh, the uh, Walker Theatre. Nellie McClung was a very colourful uh, sort of speaker. An unusual thing, uh, having a woman that could go about and address an audience anywhere. It just happened that my mother and I were visiting in Winnipeg at that time. And so I was able to be at the uh, mock parliament that night. And uh, my recollection of it was that Nellie McClung uh, moving about as uh, the premier and the women sitting on the platform as the members of the house. And uh, they were uh, deciding whether they should allow men to vote or not. Were men really capable? Wouldn't they go out and make fools of themselves? Uh, they'd, they'd just vote against what women wanted, probably. And... Uh, uh, it would be disastrous to business and everything else. And uh, uh, it's, it was uproariously funny. I remember the laughter of the audience more than I remember what was being said because uh, she had really uh, made a caricature of Sir Rodman Roblin that would be uh, pretty difficult to, uh, uh, to repeat. And uh, it had such an effect that uh, it was said afterward that it had more to do with the defeat of the Roblin government when they went to the province the next year. Thanks to the events such as the mock parliament, the 1915 Manitoba election would become a turning point in the movement in the West. The Manitoba Liberal Party promised to give women the right to vote, which gained it the support of suffragists throughout the province. That election would see the end of conservative rule that had lasted since 1900, with the Liberals taking 40 of 47 seats. In December 1915, the Political Equality League of Manitoba delivered 40,000 signatures in support of women getting the right to vote, and Premier Norris would assure the women who gave him the petition that a bill was being prepared to give women the vote in Manitoba and that he hoped to have it before the coming session of the legislature. The Liberal Party then made good on the promise by granting women the right to vote and hold provincial office on January 28, 1916. When the final vote was done on the new law, several seats in the legislature were set aside for women to sit at. As the bill was read for a third time, the women rose in the legislature and sang O Canada, and then cheered the members of the legislature. The MPs then responded with a cheer of their own for the women. Dr. Mary Crawford, president of the Political Equality League in Winnipeg, would say, quote, Heartiest congratulations to the women of Manitoba on the passage of the suffrage bill. Through the efforts of its women, Manitoba has gained the enviable distinction of being the most progressive province in the Dominion. We rejoice with you. Suffragist Lillian Thomas would state, quote, 
The women of Manitoba are now citizens, persons, human beings who have stepped politically out of the class of criminals, children, idiots, and lunatics. End quote. This would prove to be the domino falling that suffragists were hoping for. Saskatchewan would give women the vote on March 14, 1916, while Alberta would follow suit on April 19, 1916. On May 1, 1916, Suffrage Day was celebrated not only across the United States, but also in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Both Alberta and Saskatchewan had seen a growing suffragist movement for years by this point, supported by the political parties that were springing up in the rural parts of the provinces. The Women's Grain Growers Association was established in 1914 and was led by Violet McNaughton, the most powerful suffragist in Saskatchewan. In 1915, the Women's Christian Temperance Union merged with the Women's Grain Growers Association to form the Provincial Equal Franchise Board. Their petition campaign would lead the way for Saskatchewan's government to follow Manitoba's lead. In Alberta, the United Farmers of Alberta endorsed suffrage in 1912, and in 1915, the United Farm Women of Alberta was created to support suffrage. McClung moved to Alberta and began working with Emily Murphy, Louise McKinney, and Irene Parlby. Those four women, along with Henrietta Muir Edwards, would become the famous five, who in 1929 were successful in getting women declared persons and granting them the right to sit in the Canadian Senate. McClung would speak on the floor of the Alberta legislature, stating, quote, You will not tell me politics are too corrupt for women. Men tell us, too, with a fine of chivalry that women should not be given the vote because women don't want it, the inference being that women get nothing unless they want it. Women get a lot of things they don't want, the war, the liquor traffic, the lower pay for equal work. End quote. In British Columbia, the suffragist campaign was not led by rural groups, but by urban ones. The Women's Christian Temperance Union again proved to be influential, helping to lead the charge in the province. In 1912, the British Columbia Federation of Labour endorsed suffrage, and on March 19, 1913, the Vancouver Sun printed a special women's edition of the newspaper that sold out immediately. With petitions and growing support, British Columbia decided to put the decision of suffrage in the hands of its voters, who were all men. The province was the only one in Canada to go this route. In the 1916 provincial election, male voters overwhelmingly voted in favour of giving women the right to vote, 48,619 to 18,604. The government then approved women's suffrage on April 5, 1917. With all four western provinces now granting women the right to vote, Ontario quickly followed suit on April 12, 1917. Unlike in the west, where the governments were liberal, Ontario's government was conservative. With over half of Canadian women now having the right to vote, the pressure was on for the federal government to grant the right to vote for federal elections. With the First World War raging and casualties mounting, the government of Sir Robert Borden wanted to enact conscription, which was popular in English Canada but highly unpopular in French Canada. Forming a union government that merged the Conservatives with some conscription-supporting Liberals, he readied himself for the 1917 election, the most divisive election in Canadian history. I covered this election on From John to Justin, and you can listen to it in the link in my transcript on the website. In order to ensure his government was elected, Borden implemented some new laws that were a bit shady. The first law was the Military Voters Act, which gave the vote to women who were in active military service, such as nursing sisters. These women were the first Canadian women to vote in federal elections. But the most relevant law for this episode was the Wartime Elections Act. This act would remove the vote from anyone, including those who lived in Canada for a decade or more, 
who were deemed to be enemy aliens. Anyone who arrived in Canada after 1902 lost the vote if they came from a country like Germany or Austria. This group of people typically voted Liberal, and it would result in a huge loss of votes for Liberals, especially in the Prairie Provinces. But the Act also gave the vote to female relatives of soldiers overseas who were more likely to vote for the Conservatives than conscription. The vote was given to any wife, widow, mother, sister, or daughter of any person, male or female, living or dead, who was serving or had served in the military forces. The German Atrocities Pamphlet, published by the Union Government Publicity Bureau, would state about why women should vote for the government, stating, quote, Why would the women of Canada vote for the Union Government? Because they are vitally interested in seeing that the war against Germany and all of Germany represents is carried on to the bitter end. Germany's attitude to women is that of the uncivilized savage. Germans are brutal, fiendish, and human. In Belgium, lustful and cruel, they violated women and girls, murdered their husbands, tortured and mutilated children, and murdered babies. End quote. Shady or not, this would give at least some women the right to vote, even though it took the vote away from many Canadians. After conscription had been enacted, the government would then extend the right to vote to all women. On May 24, 1918, all female citizens except Indigenous and Asian women who were over the age of 21 were given the right to vote. Even if the province the women lived in did not have the vote, the women in that province could still vote in federal elections. And despite this momentous day, it passed without much news with the vote just being part of many other votes, including for the implementation of daylight saving time. The 1921 federal election would be the first election in which nearly all Canadian women could vote. The Conservatives did not waste an opportunity to remind women voters that it was their party that gave women the vote. The Liberals countered that they would have done the same if they were in power at the time, adding that several Liberal provincial governments gave the women the vote. Conservative literature touted that it was a woman's role to keep the traditional society together. The literature stated, quote, It may well be that the future of the entire race is to be henceforth in women's hands. If this be so, then there is one thing that the woman voter cannot escape, her responsibility, end quote. The Liberals would also court the female vote, and in its pamphlet, Women in Politics, it stated, quote, Every woman will, on that day, determine by her vote what party or set of men will administer the government of Canada for the next five years. Women are more concerned with the home life of the nation than any other interest. The real question, therefore, for them are how can a political party affect the home and the cost of living, end quote. The Dominion Elections Act would be passed in 1920 and would allow women to run for Parliament, but Indigenous or Asian women were denied this right. The Act also created the office of the Chief Electoral Officer, and Oliver Bigger, a former Army Colonel, was chosen as the first person to occupy this position. Bigger would have a massive job ahead of him. He would have 75,000 brand new election officials who supervise the process, which now included women who can now vote, doubling the number of eligible voters in the country. After the federal government gave women the right to vote, the Atlantic provinces would soon follow suit. Nova Scotia would grant the vote to women on April 26, 1918, followed by New Brunswick on April 17, 1919. Prince Edward Island would be the next province when it gave the vote to women on May 3, 1919. Newfoundland, not part of Canada at the time, would give women the vote on March 9, 1934. This left only Quebec as the outlier of the vote for women. Suffrage supporters from the province came from both French and English-speaking residents, but the power of the Catholic Church in the province would handicap any attempt to get women the right to vote. The local Council of Women out of Montreal was a major campaigner for women's suffrage in the province, 
and included Carrie Derrick and Octavia Grace Ritchie England, both from McGill University as its members. Idola Saint-Jean, another McGill professor, led the French-speaking suffragists, while Therese Cassegrain led the League for Women's Rights. On February 9, 1922, 500 Quebec suffragists confronted the Premier about giving women the vote. He responded by stating that as long as he was in office, women would never have the right to vote. The Montreal Daily World would report, quote, Although the Premier admitted that the government was divided on the issue, the general impression here is that the women's suffrage in the province is one of the reforms of the future, but it will not come in the near future, end quote. That prediction would actually prove to be extremely accurate. The same year that the delegation met the Premier, the first bill to give women the vote was submitted, and it was met with near-unanimous opposition and derision from members of the legislature. Over the next 18 years, the Quebec legislature would reject proposals for giving women the vote 15 times, but as time went on, the opposition to the idea became less and less. It would take years to break down the Catholic opposition to women receiving the right to vote, but through the support of federal liberal politicians, progressive provincial politicians, as well as the new federal party, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, women were finally able to vote in provincial elections in Quebec on April 25, 1940. Quebec women, or the women of Lower Canada, that was Quebec at the time, were the only women in the British Empire that had the right to vote. That's very interesting when you stop to think of it. And that was in the beginning of the 19th century. And uh, then in the 1840-something, they lost it, right? And it took us nearly 100 years to get it back. But um, I feel that Quebec women have played a great role because they generally were more educated than the men. And I don't know if it, for what reason, but they did not take up the place they should have taken publicly. They were uh, working in a different manner, and they were stopped often by prejudice, and uh, I think to the satisfaction of men, <laughs> I wouldn't want to commit them very much. And then when we tried to get them to come out, it was more difficult, because as I tell you, they were facing a lot of obstacles. And when we fought to obtain achieve women's suffrage, we were only about 20 to 25 in the province of Quebec. And yet we had a lot of people who were sympathizing with us, but they didn't do anything about it. I have seen women in my days uh, when I was working out in the uh, public arena. I saw some women extremely well informed. And a lot of men in Quebec, in the rural districts, for instance, wouldn't take a decision. They'd say, well, I'll talk about it to my wife and then I'll let you know. You see, th this was a proof that the women knew and were well informed, but on account of certain attitudes and of certain prejudices, they were not coming out, and they were more uh, apt to remain in the background. But it didn't mean they were not well informed. And it's amusing, if you read the history of Quebec, you will see that uh, Madame Pepineau, for instance, voted for her son in the beginning of the 19th century. And uh, the vote was public at the time because she said, I feel he's a fair and just man. So uh, I'm not ready to uh, say the Quebecois didn't know. I think that she was not allowed by uh, formalities and old customs to come out, but she knew. And then you see another question. Uh, you should ask yourself, is it particular to Quebec? And I don't think so. Because all across Canada, it's always been difficult for women to be uh, 
heard or to take an active role in politics. It's a kind of a mentality that is actually very strong in the um, Occident part of the world. Because in the Orient, if you look in the uh, new countries, you have uh, Madame Nehru, you have Madame Golda Meir, you have Madame uh, Bandanarak in Ceylon. Whether you agree with them or not, that's another matter. But they are women who have a great personality and a lot of brains, because you don't want to have a woman in the house just because she's a woman. You don't have an old person to represent the old people. You don't have a, a well, I don't want to make any color distinctions, but it's stupid. I think you should have them as they are. And you've never seen a woman president of the United States, eh? not yet. And I imagine it will not be today or tomorrow that you will see a woman being prime minister of Canada. It might come in later years, but we never knew. In 1951, the Northwest Territories would give women the right to vote as well. And with that, women across the country had the vote. Well, almost all women. Black women were never restricted in the vote in any official capacity and could effectively vote as soon as white women could. But the same could not be said for Asian women. The 1920 Dominion Elections Act prevented Chinese, Japanese, and South Asian men and women from being able to vote in federal elections, as well as provincial elections in British Columbia and Saskatchewan. And it was not until 1948 that Asian men and women could finally vote in federal elections. For Indigenous women, the wait was even longer. The 1934 Dominion Franchise Act denied the right to status Indigenous and Inuit, and until 1951, women could not even vote or hold office in their own bands under the Indian Act. It was not until 1960 that all Indigenous men and women gained the right to vote, and even with that, it was not until 1969 that all provinces gave Indigenous the right to vote. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at women's suffrage. Next week, we're looking at the Indigenous leader, Joseph Brandt. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, Maclean's, Wikipedia, Library and Archives Canada, Diefenbaker Canada Centre, Montreal Gazette, Vancouver Province, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Vancouver Daily World, Winnipeg Tribune, and Women's Suffrage in Canada. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.